Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we're going to be looking at the safety of autonomous vehicles. Today's cars already have some sort of autonomy to an extent when you think about lane assist or parking assist systems, but the degree of autonomy is increasing year by year. In the future, this autonomy could increase to the point where we actually have self-driving cars, and certainly that's the goal of some automotive companies at the moment, and it could, in theory, be safer than current vehicles by reducing human error, as we'll see in this episode. But by swapping physical control and human judgment for automated hardware and computing systems, we do introduce new dangers. In this episode, I'll investigate the advantages and the risks of autonomous vehicles. I started by catching up with Siddharth Kastgir. I am the Head of Verification and Validation of Autonomous Vehicles at WMG University of Warwick. And essentially what my research is involved is trying to prove that autonomous vehicles are safe, which is not easy, but that's where the research comes in. Autonomous cars today are not safe. They will never be 100% safe. But if we know what they can and cannot do, we can still benefit from them. So the challenge here is trying to establish what it can do. So we claim that it's safe only for certain things and not for the whole wide world. Okay, so just to clarify, what are autonomous vehicles safe for today? Nothing. There is not a safe autonomous vehicle today unless you have a safety driver inside the vehicle. Then it's safe because you've got a backup human driver. But an autonomous vehicle without a safety driver or a remote operator is not safe. And anybody who says that they have created a safe autonomous vehicle without a driver is more or less not saying the truth. It's interesting because I think a lot of people do have this psychological barrier to autonomous vehicles. But if you talk about an autopilot on an aeroplane, then we're all a little bit more relaxed about that, you know, and that's something that's been around for a long time. But from what you just said, I think that's interesting because there's always a pilot to back it up. Exactly. I think that's the big difference uh, that there's some nuances to automation in general that we don't appreciate enough. So people keep saying we've already got autopilot on aeroplanes. Why is it so hard to bring in autonomous vehicles? You always, always got a pilot as a backup person in a aeroplane. There is has been a, a very interesting study which says that would you be willing to be in a plane with remote piloting, with the pilot not inside the cockpit. And there's a huge difference in people who want and do not want to be in that plane. So that, that assurance that somebody is there as a backup person is a huge psychological boost for general public. Mm, I can see that. And we can all imagine what it's like in the cockpit. We've, we've seen that. We know what a pilot's doing. We know how they can take over. But these autonomous vehicles of the future what's the driver doing what does it actually look like inside this vehicle and when are we likely to see them the word driver will need to change because there won't be a driver to start with but 
depending upon applications, the timelines can be very different. So one thing, again, another nuance with this technology is not all autonomous vehicles would look like the same. So for a classic case study over here would be last mile, last mile transportation. So let's assume going from city center to the train station or train station to your local train station to your house which is let's say a few miles or less than a mile. Now you can have things like low speed shuttles ferrying you from point A to point B. Now that is a very different use case as compared to going on the motorway at 70 miles per hour, completely autonomous. So there are two very different use cases with very different sensors being used for perception and with very different challenges to safety. So I would say for some of the low speed automation like these shuttles going ferrying you from straight station to city center or your local train station to your house we're looking roughly around five to six years before we see them commercially deployed as a business proposition whereas the other technology like full autonomous vehicle taking you from your home to office we are easily 20 15 to 20 years away from Okay, so if I'm ordering a taxi using an app on my phone in 15 years' time, then it could well be an autonomous vehicle. But I'm sort of thinking of Teslas today, and a lot of what's talked about in terms of Teslas is that it is an autonomous vehicle, to some extent. Exactly. And if you think about even a Tesla, it's, it's a bit of a, what I call as wrong marketing of technology. The Tesla itself is not an autonomous vehicle. It's an assistance feature that is on the vehicle. The autopilot feature which they market is not an autonomous feature. By definition, and if you read the manual, which nobody reads, <laughs> you need the driver to control the vehicle. He is supposed, the driver are supposed to be the backup person always. And not many people know that because they just think autopilot is autopilot. So they don't need to do anything. And that's why you've seen lots of these accidents happening in, in the States recently where people have misused or over trusted the technology and used it in a way it should not be used. And that's where we coined this term of informed safety. So informed safety essentially means that you tell the driver what the technology can and cannot do and you use it only in the domain where it can handle the situation. So marketing and assistance feature as autonomous feature is just so wrong. Okay, so one of these truly autonomous vehicles of the future in 20 years time, how's it going to look? Are we sitting in the same formation is it like an aeroplane how, how is it actually gonna look inside a vehicle that's a very interesting question because there are all sorts of permutations and combinations with seating possible in an autonomous car one thing that we need to appreciate here is when people are sitting in a vehicle not doing the driving task there's a huge chance of the onset of motion sickness. I'm very bad when it comes to sitting backwards in a train. 
I just cannot handle that because I get motion sick. Similarly, a lot of people I've spoken to and we've done at WMG, we've done a lot of research around this as to how to prevent the onset of motion sickness. But a lot of people I've spoken to cannot handle sitting backwards. So you might have seen a lot of sci-fi images of autonomous vehicle cockpits where people are facing each other, having coffee, doing a meeting. It might be possible, but we don't know right now because there are a lot of nuances to being comfortable sitting, facing each other in a fairly small cockpit. And nobody's in control. There's nobody who can take control of the no steering wheel that they can grab hold of, etc. Ultimately, they will always have the, mush- the big red mushroom, which they can press and stop the car. You cannot just ask people to get inside and just believe that God will help, help them. <laughs> So there, there will always be a big red mushroom to stop something. So, for example, somebody's feeling ill, something happened, uh, God forbid. So they should have this opportunity to just stop the vehicle, uh, not drive it, just stop it. And what does that look like? I mean, if it's on a busy motorway in the fast lane, you press stop. How does that work? I, I think that, that's one of the things that we've been uh, discussing a lot in the international standards world also right now is what does a safe behavior mean when somebody presses an emergency stop? Is applying emergency braking in the lane, in the middle of a motorway safe? And there are arguments to be said, it is safe. If somebody is not feeling well or has got a medical con- severe medical condition, they might just need to get out and call an ambulance and get to the get to a medical facility urgently. Now, there are ways to make it safe by saying, by having some display or relaying information over the air to all the cars in the neighborhood that there is a medical situation in this car. So there there are ways to do that, but there's a lot of work to do before we get to that stage. Yeah, and I, I, I'm struggling to see how that could be safer than, say, for example, if... Currently, there's a driver in the car, somebody in the car feels unwell, then that driver would ideally, of course, safely move over to the hard shoulder or ideally to the services. And I can't see how that, well, how does that work with an autonomous vehicle? There are two very different situations and two very different circumstances. The chances of somebody having a medical emergency while on a long drive or a or on an autonomous drive are lesser because if you feel that somebody's having that you might just preempt a lot of these things but then there's also this concept of driver state monitoring where the car itself keeps continuously monitoring the state of the driver you can do the pupils you can do the blood pressure blood blood uh, using the sweat of your hands, they can understand what you're feeling. So a lot of these conditions can be preempted by uh, by this driver state monitoring systems. And then a similar thing, like you said, you could go to the hard shoulder or go to the services, That that is possible. But then that's an add-on technology to the autonomous technology itself. Well, I consider myself to be relatively favorably disposed towards autonomous vehicles, and this sort of technology. But even I'm finding it difficult to get over that kind of psychological barrier. And how is it that we can 
tackle the public's perception of autonomous vehicles and the safety of them? That's a very important question, Andreas. And I would say right now we're not doing enough. And the reason behind that is public in general is feeling that autonomous vehicles will be able to do everything. And that is something that we believe will never happen. So we have this tagline of sorts, I would say that absolute safety is a myth. Absolute safety of autonomous vehicles will never ever happen. And there's a reason for saying that. If you take an example or in the current COVID context, it's this is very valid. So with the easing of the lockdown rules, we can go out, but nobody can guarantee that it's absolutely safe to go out. If we follow a few rules like having face masks, not going into very large gatherings, maintaining the social distancing, then we might be safe. But even then, we are not absolutely safe. So this that's where this concept of informed safety comes in. People need to accept the fact that autonomous vehicles will not be 100% safe, but they will be 100% capable in certain situations. And that those are the situations where we should be using them and not misusing them in other situations. So I think this concept of safety needs to change from absolute safety to informed safety. And that's where I would say that we're not doing enough because people still believe or hope that autonomous vehicles will mean zero accidents. That is not going to happen. Autonomous vehicles would mean reduction in the number of accidents. It, may, it might mean zero accidents if we use it in the correct manner. It's funny because people quite often, I think, might think of autonomous vehicles as being something that's just an innovation and something exciting, perhaps, that's coming. But to think of it as something that is specifically being designed and made to make things safer, I don't think that's how people see it. That is a big motivation. That is a huge motivation of reducing the number of road accidents. And and not just saving lives uh, is the big motivation. When you have accidents, there's a huge societal cost in the healthcare and other aspects around it. So some people have accidents and they have permanent disabilities, which has additional healthcare activities, uh, healthcare costs. So there was a very interesting figure I, I read some uh, one of the days that in the UK, it's every year for the last six years, there have been 1700 fatalities due to road accidents. And it has plateaued to 17, roughly around 1700. And there have been injuries, severe and minor injuries. The whole societal cost of this is close to 35 billion pounds. Just the healthcare cost associated with it and also the infrastructure cost like ambulance and, and NHS, etc. So it's not just saving lives. It's also redu- reducing that amount that we spend because of these accidents. Okay, so tell me then, how is an autonomous vehicle safer? How is it? Wh- why is it safer? Maybe that's the same thing. And maybe the same thing, but maybe not the same thing also. So let's talk about the accidents that happen right now. A lot of these accidents are actually due to human error. So 1,700 fatalities, I gave you the number in the UK in the last six, every year for the last six years. 90% of these accidents are due to human error. Now, there is an argument to be made. If it's due to human error, if we remove the human, then 
the accidents will not happen uh, that's a slightly naive way of thinking though i would say but if you assist the human in being able to handle situations that are difficult for the human to handle where the autonomy could come in then this number can be reduced so it's not only removing the driver it's also helping the driver so for example again uh, let's say i'm going on a very long drive from london to newcastle and i've got lo- roads uh, long roads of motorways that i need to drive in a lot of these accidents can occur due to driver drowsiness that people just doze off because there's nothing to do you're just driving down the motorway and that's where the autonomous features can kick in that when there is nothing much to do and the drive can just take on uh, and take you down the road so it's not about just replacing the driver it's also helping the driver so a lot of the accidents are because of dr- driver drowsiness driver distraction drunken driving uh, and all these things which can be overcome if we have autonomy or if we have some way to assist the driver to overcome these situations you can't stop people from drinking people will still drink <laughs> especially after 5 months of pubs being sh- shut down oh yes that sounds like quite a good use of autonomous vehicles if i could have an autonomous vehicle come and pick me up now and take me to a nice country pub where there was nobody else around or a nice big beer garden where we could be safely distanced and I could just have a couple of pints that would be great why would you limit yourself to two pints <laughs> okay maybe three but joking apart I and mean, when you're doing your research and you're doing these simulations could you just talk me through what one of those simulations might look like okay let's let's take an example so i have a scenario that i want to test that uh my autonomous vehicle is going through a straight road has a zebra crossing in front of it it's green as a traffic light has got a green light for the vehicle to go but pedestrians are pedestrians so they just jump in front of the vehicle just when it's approaching the zebra crossing so that's the scenario so let's see what the vehicle would do would the vehicle detect the person and br- apply brakes etc now doing this in real world is very risky because you don't want to kill somebody <laughs> so we put a set up a simulation where we've got the autonomous vehicle the the brain of the autonomous vehicle in a loop with the simulation environment which is generating this road the zebra crossing the traffic light and the pedestrian now that simulation is sending all the information to the autonomous vehicle brain which is connected in a loop to it and it is perceiving the environment based on that in- information and it's processing the information like l- let's assume it's using a lidar sensor and a camera sensor just in case you don't know lidar is a bit like radar except that instead of using radio pulses to build up the dynamic picture of what's around it it uses light reflecting off the surfaces all around so it's getting all the lidar sensor feed and the camera sensor feed from the simulation and the brain is processing it and if it's able to detect the pedestrian it might apply brakes and may evade the pedestrian or it might be too late for it to detect the pedestrian and might cause a crash so that's a classic example of having the brain of the autonomous vehicle in the loop with the simulation
The other thing you could also do is put the brain also in, inside the simulation. So rather than having the hardware in the loop, you put everything inside the, the computer itself. So that's one of the early stages of simulation. That's something that we do is we put the brain inside the simulation PC itself and run it like that. But in that case, you are only testing the software, not the hardware associated with it. So depending upon what your aim is, you only want to test the software brain or you also want to test the software on the processor unit that is being put on the autonomous vehicle, you might choose different types of simulation. And you're not doing this research in isolation, are you? It's, it's very much linked to industry. All our projects are with you know, uh, industries. So either we work with industry in a collaborative project or we do some projects for industry uh, as part of direct uh, re uh, research. So that's one of the ethos uh, of WMG when Lord Bhattacharya set up WMG back in 1980. And how does that work? Did the car company sort of come to you and say, okay, we want to do this, tell us everything to do with the safety? I think we're taking a piecemeal approach to it because you can't tackle everything at the same time. So we've done a lot of work on understanding test scenarios for autonomous vehicles. So what are the kind of scenarios we need to test the system for? Uh, we're doing a lot of work around how do you argue for safety? And we are also doing a lot of work on sim using simulation for testing of these systems. So, but we are taking piecemeal approaches. Each project is focused on a different aspect of this whole safety landscape. I tend to classify it into two big categories. One is getting the technology safe. And the other is getting people to use it safely. And I'm not kidding. The latter is harder than the former. Getting people to use it safely is a much bigger challenge than getting the technology safe. And there's a reason to it. People are different. Every person is different from another person. And that's, that's the beauty of our society. That's so diverse. And you need to cater to, for that diversity when you think about the usage. Is the design of the system done in a way that is intuitive to the whole society so that they use it in a way it should be used. A lot of times we don't consider this safe use of technology enough, especially engineers. They just like to design stuff. Uh, but we need to get this human side of things also into the design. So it turns out that the biggest problem for autonomous vehicles is not the technology itself, but us the drivers. But risks to do with the technology remain, even if at their root they're still caused by humans. A feature by Stephen Orns in the August issue of the Physics World magazine entitled How to Hack an Autonomous Vehicle explores just that. I wanted to find out more, so I spoke to Simon Parkinson. So I'm a reader at the University of Huddersfield Part of my job is really doing security analysis and research of uh, technologies, and one of those is connected autonomous vehicles. And that largely involves looking at the, the computer science elements that exist within in the devices and looking how they can be used in adverse ways, um, how they can be abused really by an adversary, what weaknesses exist. And then on the flip side of that, looking at developing technologies which can try to prevent um, their, their attack surfaces being visible, so their attack mechanisms being, being evident in the system. 
So I manage a team of people here at Huddersfield who likewise do the same thing. So either post postdoctoral researchers or doctoral researchers, and a lot of them in in similar areas, although might be on slightly different technologies. So some of them might be focusing on more like five G technology rather than uh, vehicles. Uh, but yeah, we have quite a diverse portfolio. So how do you go about researching the safety of autonomous vehicles in that way? And what, what does the research involve? So it's probably the same way actually an adversary would, would actually do it. Um, and it's about understanding the components that exist in the system. Um, so, so really, what is it doing in terms of computing input, output and process uh, unit? And then once you have a, a gauge for understanding what data is coming in and what, what is happening on the output and what control mechanisms are in, in the box, if you like, you can kind of start to think about how they could be abused. I mean, that's on a very sort of discrete level. But when you start putting bigger components together, um, then you start getting sorts of like lots of interweaved uh, vulnerabilities that exist. So it's quite challenging, really. And a lot of it um, involves looking at latest research on quite sort of fine, fine, fine grain, detailed technologies and looking how it can link together. One thing that exists within the um, automotive sector, just like every other sector, really, is that it's a very technologically advancing area. And there's a lot of technology that exists to do lots of small things so you probably you know for your listeners they probably appreciate that the car is not just a car you know it's got it's got in-car entertainment and then when you actually drill down on all aspects of the car itself there's lots of systems that exist to control lots of different elements of it you know whether it's the some some sort of relatable examples cruise control maybe it's the electronic locking um everything really is is a software hardware combination um and when you have software-hardware combinations, they're often designed with functionality in mind to do a task. The, the locking, for example, the um, central locking on the remote, you know, its, it's primary purpose really is to lock and unlock and, and only unlock and lock with the correct key. But if there's a way to perhaps use that technology outside of the box, which the designer didn't think about, then it opens up the potential then to impact on other elements of the system. Um, and how that propagates through and, and the end result could be something quite significant is cars within the last 10 years have become increasingly sort of maybe even 15 years have become more connected right so there's more bluetooth connectivity going on with them um, built-in satellite navigation systems these kind of things and and they have mechanisms for some some of them for, for doing like automatic software updates over bluetooth and they've been around for quite some time sort of attacks can take place from very primitive starting points so it could be somebody doing something like just interfering with the Bluetooth connection between the um, tyre pressure sensor, you know, and, and when they interfere with it, then they can actually take over that communication mechanism. And once they've established it, then it can also open up other routes within the system. Then basically they, they come, become connected to the network and a lot of the, the vehicles that are out there, especially the, the legacy ones that are around where the security wasn't so much of a concern, they're quite open once you're inside. Um, so once you actually get connected to the sort of the main networks in there, you're kind of automatically trusted. The, the ones that are the most dangerous from a security perspective and also from the, the driver's perspective or the passenger are the, the autonomous ones. You know, they're the ones that have more automated functionality, um, such as, you know, your automated braking systems, your lane detection. These These are kind of coupled at a more central level within the vehicle you know because obviously they're, they're happening very quickly right so the data that's being processed for the automated detection mechanism has to be processed quickly and fed, fed in to do something so that means it's kind of at a, a closer central level um, and if you can abuse that somehow um, 
then you've, you've probably got access to a more direct and, and influential point to the vehicle's control. That's where the problems can really happen um, because if you can start interfering with systems that are essential to the, the functionality, then it becomes a, a huge safety concern. Yeah, no, I can see that for the future, but as we stand today, we don't have autonomous vehicles as far as I understand it. We don't have fully autonomous vehicles on the road, but we do have these technologies that you're talking about technologies that keep the car in the lane or a certain distance from the car in front. How would people be hacking those today? Now, that, that could be sort of on a, a sort of really understandable, relatable level, which probably isn't actually practically possible, would be just to put something in front of the sensor to trick it, right? But that, that's not really feasible when, when someone's driving down the road. But perhaps if somebody really understands the technology that's being used, um, what, whatever sensor um, system it's using... There might be a way to interfere with it, perhaps with just sending radio waves at it, for example, you know, interfering on an electronic level. And that, that becomes problematic then because somebody could just drive down the road broadcasting uh, sort, sort, certain frequency radio waves that you carry, interfering with, with the system, causing it to malfunction, thinking there's something immediately ahead when actually there's not. It's just somebody uh, distorting the signals that it's receiving. It's not really a vulnerability in the software, right, because it's somebody abusing the system beyond what it was designed for um but that that's that's what the problem is with vehicles because if you think about your computer for example you you know that viruses or malicious software exist for it and people can try to install them on your your pc and get it to do things that you don't want it to do but it's it's a pc right it's fixed it's it's not really taking that much sensor information in other than you know your key and your mouse but a car is a you could see it as a mobile PC where it's sensing lots of different sources and it's still susceptible to the, the traditional style malware that, that we'll mention in a bit actually and, and getting that sort of malicious executable code running on there. But some of the more primitive attacks that can happen, low level, don't, they don't require much sophistication are these sort of uh, just abusing the, the sensory networks. I can see that that is possible, but I can't really appreciate why somebody would actually do that. I mean, what was the motivation for driving down the road, sending out one of these signals that confuses all the cars around you? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and, and that's what could stop a lot of it happening because there, there, there is no primary objective. But, you know, the, you, you could look cynically and think, well, there, there could be objectives here around simply disruption, of the, the infrastructure. So if you can convince a sufficient number of cars that there is something that requires them to stop, well, the knock-on impact of that could be quite significant through, through a, a you know, populated city, really. It could, could have quite... You know, it's, it's hard, hard to imagine what it could achieve, but the fact is that somebody, if they, if they can do it, they might try it. You know, and it, it might be tried purely for a, a curiosity point of view. In, in terms of actual sort of more traditional... Um, PC hacking, we, you know, you have all these different levels of, of the sort of skill involved with a person doing doing the, the technical hacking. And right at the bottom, you've kind of got the people who are just doing it for a bit of fun, who are using sort of uh, automated techniques that somebody else has, has created, right? They're just running the scripts, basically, to, to do something easy. Now, they, they could become the people who do this kind of thing um, because they're curious, not, not because they're, they're particularly malicious. There could also be a, a competitive thing here with manufacturers. I mean, I'm not saying that a manufacturer would do it against the other one, but, you know, if one manufacturer is particularly susceptible to this kind of thing, well, it wouldn't be good for them to, ha to, to suffer this kind of attack 
um, because then the public confidence in that vehicle is probably quite, quite low, even even if the actual damage is negligible. Nobody wants to be inconvenienced with the vehicle, right? Um, and I suppose that's probably the the slightly scary part, really, is that you, you don't know what could happen and you, you wouldn't really want somebody to, to try it out. There, there have been uh, sort of many research studies where people have done very fine-grained and detailed hacking attempts on, on certain vehicles and, and done things like managed to take control of the acceleration or the, or the braking system. And, you know, th th that can be more severe, right? Because if somebody can actually disable the braking system, yeah, then, then you're in a completely different uh, area, really, because, you know, tricking the vehicle to, to stop quickly is, is one thing, but actually making it so the vehicle can't stop is, is a completely different kind of severity. Yeah, it's funny because it sort of feels quite like science fiction. I mean, that's part of a storyline in a science fiction, new science fiction series on uh, Amazon at the moment called Upload, where that happens. You know, somebody controls an autonomous vehicle and makes it go faster and stops the brakes from working. But it does sort of feel a bit science fiction. It feels quite far in the future. In some ways, it's not, because first of all, you know, researchers have found vulnerabilities that exist in systems that allow people to do it, although they, they do require some skill level to do, but they can do it, okay? Now, the, the thing I think that is good about the, the vehicle sector, actually, is they are considering this now, right, as things progress, which, which is good. The, the emphasis is probably being put out there strong, more strongly than... Um, with a with a PC when it was in development 15 years ago, you know when when the computing age was coming about, it's interesting really how it's it's gripping the the sort of the sector, and it's actually gripping governments as well. The UK has done quite a lot actually in response to the <clears throat> the potential in terms of you know bringing about new standards, international standards that manufacturers have to adhere to, because they recognise the potential. If nobody addresses it, then it exists. You have to remember as well, a vehicle could have a, a 15 year lifespan right out, out in the world um, so if you develop something and then in 10 years time how is the technology landscape actually changed you know and what does that mean for the technology that was embedded within it um, so you know making sure it's future proof is is quite challenging um, and that's challenging for everyone in technology whether it's cars or, or not because as as technology computational power increases, it becomes easier and easier to, you know, do the sort of random guessing of uh, encryption keys or passwords and things like that. And if you make a vehicle and it has a certain level of security, but then in 10 years' time it's easy to break it, then, you know, you, you've got problems there under the hood, so to speak, really. In, in that so uh, software system, there's, there's just as much code as, as what's required for your, your Windows 10 machine, your Microsoft machine. And as you know, with Microsoft machines, Windows 10 and other, other operating systems, the more code you have, the more likelihood of um, a vulnerability existing, a, a bug being there that needs to be patched in the future, which could be exploited. And, you know, one of the problems with vehicles is how do you actually update them with the, with the patch? If they're all roaming about, how do you uh, securely broadcast the update to, to them in such a way that it can't be intercepted, it can't be modified, you know, somebody can't send a rogue update... There's all these kind of problems that need to be addressed um, and they need to be addressed really. Before a mistake happens really in that a, a company releases something which in five years time is, is, you know, you can't undo it. You can't come back and save it. It's gone too far and the, the cost of the recall would be too, too significant. Uh, yeah, yes. Now I can imagine that would concentrate the minds of the people who run the car companies. So what can we do? What can they do to ensure as much as possible 
that what they're doing today is future proof yeah the, well i think the first one is is probably the most important one is just getting the security sort of at the center of of the the vehicle systems um and that's happened so in the in the uk in the in the sort of the standards that the government have set out one of the things that's there is that there's now the sort of board level ownership of security um and you know if, if somebody does something or, or if a product has a problem then somebody is actually liable within the organization for um that that negligence if you like a security negligence now it's not just within the organization it's also within the supply chain so one thing that happens a lot with vehicle manufacturing is that it's not just one company producing the software systems every company that's producing um, a hardware device in there is, is producing software too. So there has to be a supply chain sort of uh, trust and agreement really on who will be responsible for fixing bugs, how they will be updated um, and you know what, what, what mechanisms will exist in the future to, to fix any problem. Because the way it worked previously is that uh, a manufacturer would produce something functionally driven um, and then it'd be kind of like signed off and, and that's that, you know, the, the, it, the manufacturer probably never wants to go back and visit it again. The, the code for it doesn't reside with the actual car producer. It resides with the manufacturer of that, that component. Um, so, you know, if, they, if there's a problem 10 years down the line with that code base, where is it and who, who's responsible for fixing it? So fixing the, the problem in the supply chain um, about the ownership and just the, the, the severity and the need to to take security at the centre is, is the first thing. And that's that's actually happened, I believe, quite well. Um, there's probably still progress to be made there, but the, the you know the international standards that exist and um, a lot of the, the, the big car manufacturers have dedicated security teams there now um, who, are, who are performing, whether it's research activity on, on vehicles that they're about to release to, to double-check doing the penetration testing or whether it's the designers actually making sure that the security is, is at the centre of the system. Well, what, what needs to, to be made absolutely sure is that if something does happen, the vehicles are actually sufficiently resilient to try to mitigate a lot of it itself, right? To try to prevent against stupid, really stupid things happening. So the examples about, uh, you know, remote access and taking over brakes or disabling them, for example, it should be made almost as impossible as, as sort of possible, if you like, whoever designs the, the braking system, so that you can't disable it through um, certain communication mechanisms internal, you know, making sure it has that sort of fail-safe where if it notices something going wrong, you know, it does the opposite. It puts the, puts the brakes on. Um, so, you know, making sure that it's, it's sensible, really, is, is some of the first-line first, first line defences. Yeah, the car has to be sensible, but also the person in control or not in control but sort of monitoring it the driver if you will they have to be sensible too i mean maybe that's a bit harsh if i think about when i'm sitting at a computer or i've got my phone then it's i know if someone's trying to hack into it i think i can recognize i get a phishing email uh, or, or a text message that i know that i shouldn't reply to but i don't think that that's how a hack to a car would work you're absolutely right there it's now we're now in a sort of day and age with the pcs and phones for example where the easiest way to get malicious software onto a a device is to to basically trick the user to instigate it so you trick the user to download something and run the application right which gives the the system the sort of the permission to say yeah go ahead and run it but if you look back in sort of time order if you go back 15 years maybe with a, a an older version of the microsoft system 
you'll probably remember times where you could simply visit a website and some software would start running or you plug a USB in and it automatically load it, whatever was on there, right? Now, that's the danger with, with, with the vehicles, really, is that we go backwards to that kind of potential, that kind of state. But there's also, because the vehicle is going to need a mechanism for the, for the manufacturer to update it, so basically give software updates, whether it's for the, the main control systems or maybe it's the in-car entertainment, well, the vehicle is going to have to be quite receptive to receiving communication, whatever mechanism it is, probably, probably, um, probably over the cellular network, I imagine, and it's probably going to have to be quite responsive, just waiting for it all the time. Um, obviously, there's going to be a lot of uh, building of trust, a lot of systems going on in the background and technology to try and establish whether it's coming from a correct, authentic um, provider or not, um, using cryptographic techniques, most likely encryption. Um, but if somebody could break that system, then there'd be potential to perhaps push an update to the vehicle because the, the update might not give any indication that it's been applied. You know, it might just happen in the background. So the, the, yeah, the actual owner of the car might have no idea what's going on. Now, that's obviously talking from a hypothetical point of view, really, where d there's not really much examples going on there other than people saying, yeah, these communication mechanisms can be broken, etc. But there's, there's little in the way of sort of empirical studies that say, OK, your Nissan Leaf is, is susceptible here and I can send it some software um, to your system. Because it, it's not just... the it's not that simple of just putting over some code and then, you know, the damage is done. The code has to be designed to run on that system. So that's a lot more challenging in the first instance. Somebody really needs to understand how the system works, design the code, make sure it's going to do the, whatever, it, whatever it wants it to do, whatever the adversary aims, and then broadcast it over. It's not, not such an easy job, that. No, I, I, I sort of want to live in a world where the people who are clever enough to do that don't want to. Yes. Whether we do live in that world, I suppose, is up to all of us to decide. I'll leave the final word on the topic to Siddharth Kastgir. Every year, at least in the last few years, globally, 1.25 million people have died due to road accidents. In a year, that's I'm talking 1.25 million people die due to road accidents in a year. In the UK, I've already said that Every, uh, for the last six years, every year, 1,700 people have died due to road accidents. And 90% of these accidents are due to human error. If we can create autonomous vehicles, which are even 10% better than human drivers, in the next 30 years, we can save 100,000 lives. And there's a study that actually proves that statistically, every life saved is worth it for this technology so if that doesn't convince you i'm not sure what will and if you'd like to know more about this topic then do check out stephen orne's article in the august edition of the physics world magazine i hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast and we'll be back next month when we'll be looking at the way that lego is involved in physics and quite possibly the way that physics is involved in lego and thank you very much for listening. Physics World.